If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Galatians 5 once again as we finish up this series on walking by the Spirit. We've been slowing down to look at the various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. We come to number nine today. The last one, self-control, or if you're King James Version, we'll say temperance. Not too long ago, Tiger Woods was asked by a reporter who, about his son, who's also a golfer. And the question was this, do you think that your son is going to surpass you as a golfer? Tiger Woods responded, well, it depends on how badly he wants it. Now, it might be a little surprising answer to hear Tiger Woods say something like that because he didn't say anything about proving his skills or spending more time out golfing so that he could become a better golfer than Tiger Woods. But actually, the truth of what he said is found in our text because, after all, what we worship and what we accomplish starts with desire, not necessarily more work. And you'll notice this in verse 16. You may have forgotten the context of this. I hope not. But in our study, we found in verse 16 of chapter 5, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then we really slowed down to look at the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh. We've come to the ninth or the last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control that you'll notice in verse number 23. And this morning, I want us to discuss how this last aspect, maybe why is it last? It's certainly not least. And maybe it's last because it's sort of a melting pot of all the other aspects. Remember, the fruit is singular. It's not plural. So we shouldn't consider these as fruits. We should consider them as fruit. And there's a symmetrical um, display of that fruit that we should be becoming more loving and more faithful and more patient. Maybe we could think of them like rubber bands, though, that kind of attach them. And sometimes in our Christian experience, one seems to be lagging behind the other. That's just true. And self-control is the one that we want to consider this morning. Now, the Greek word for self-control is a combination word, which isn't surprising. A lot of these have been, and there are a lot of compound words in the Greek. And the compound word here, the first part means I, and the second part means to lord over or to be the king of something, to be in charge of something. So if you put them to, the two together, it's being in charge of yourself. So self-control is being the king or the lord over yourself or over your passions. That's what it's describing. One person has defined self-control or temperance this way. It is living life within the boundaries now, what are the boundaries? Well, the boundaries are the ones that God has given us. I put on your handout as a definition is pursuing the things that are important over the things that are urgent. Because lack of self-control is the opposite. It's impulsiveness. Now, sometimes we complement it by calling it spontaneity. But, but lack of self-control is giving in to our desires without any real check on them. There's a counterfeit, though. And I'm afraid, I'm very afraid that my own heart gravitates toward this. The counterfeit is to try to just 
have more willpower or by pride have more self-control to be a more disciplined person perhaps there are people in the room that your personality would be described as a driver you love your checklist I love my checklist I mean when I get up in the morning before I do a lot I love to just look at the checklist and I can't wait to mark all things on the checklist and if I didn't have a checklist I would believe that it had been a complete waste of a day that's kind of how I work and operate but we're not talking about that that's why I'm afraid that I could I could chase after the counterfeit which is to just try a little harder get my life together a little better and then I would have this self-control I want you to see that that's actually a counterfeit it, it's something that is produced by the flesh by our own human nature and not what we're referring to this morning what we're referring to this morning is the spirit-born ability to live life within the boundaries, to pursue what's most important over what's urgent in our lives or what is calling for us. Now, in this passage, we're reminded that there is a battle of desire going on, and I believe that's why this one is last. That's my own theory. It's not least of the nine. I believe it's last because it might be the most difficult for us to see produced in our lives. It is the rubber band or the melting pot of all of these aspects. Temperance, self-control, being managed by God's Spirit. But I want us to see that in this passage in, verse, in Galatians 5, he says in verse 16 that we should expect a battle. A battle between desire and what? And the Spirit of God. Is that what you are experiencing as a believer? Well, if you're a believer, that's what you're experiencing. Whether you've noted it or not, you have a battle going on right now. And one of the ways we started this series off, and I just want to review this one aspect, that the sin nature, what's referred to here as the flesh, is just that. It is a full-fledged nature. The scriptures describe our flesh as something that has its own mind, its own will, and its own desires. That describes a nature. And so if you've ever wondered, why is it so difficult to live for Christ? Maybe even since you've been born again, you've found that the struggle perhaps in one passion or one lust is actually greater than it was prior to trusting in Christ alone. And, and you say the struggle's fierce. Well, what's going on? What's going on inside of us is we have a sin nature. Now, praise God, it received a death blow, a mortal blow at the cross. Maybe I could describe it like this. Would you rather face, now you probably would not want to face either, but would you rather, let's play would you rather for just a moment. Would you rather, did you see that little video clip of that runner that had the mountain lion coming after him? I was like, oh no. Now every time I go on a run, I'm thinking, <laughs> but would you rather have a mountain lion who is fully intact and fully healthy coming after you are one that has received a mortal blow, a mortal shot, and he's about to die, or she's about to die. Well, well I know you'd say neither, but that's not an option, okay? <laughs> I, I think that you would probably say, well, definitely the one with the mortal blow, because maybe I could outrun the one that has been shot, or there's a bow, I mean, an arrow inside of the, the, the cat. But that really is a picture of our flesh. It, it received a death blow at the cross. It doesn't have the power that it used to have, but it still has its last 
gasping breath that receives a very fierce fight inside of us. So in this area of self-control, we are finding that our passions are going against the Spirit. And one of the clearest aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is winning that battle by seeing the wonderful aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control produced in our lives. I love Dr. John Piper's definition of self-control, and he, he puts it in the form of a sentence, and he says it this way, what we hunger for most in life, we worship. So what does a self-controlled life look like? Well, what we, what we worship most, or what we hunger for most in life, is what we worship. It's what we go after. So back to Tiger Woods' quote, he was saying that if my son is going to surpass me in skills, it's going to all be in the desire category. Now, I now want you to turn to the Old Testament, okay? I, I'm going somewhere with this, so some of you are saying, where is he going? Go, go to Judges, please, chapter 13, with me real quickly. I want us to look at this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit through the lens of an Old Testament narrative, one that is probably very familiar to you, and it is Samson. Judges 13 to 16 deals with Samson. So, real quickly, this is the... Marvel superhero of the Old Testament, right? As a kid, he was my favorite one. Didn't matter what the flannel graph story was. I was always having a good Sunday if it was Samson. I thought of Samson like David Banner and Hulk. I always thought that it was something like, don't make me angry, you won't like me when I'm angry. I just knew it had to be something like that. I had Incredible Hulk blankets. I was all about Incredible Hulk. And I envisioned Samson being a little like Lou Ferrigno, painted green, but maybe not painted. And when he would get angry and fill with the spirit, he would bust out and he would destroy things, namely Philistines. I'm not sure that's how it went down, but that was how I viewed it as a kid. And I actually saw Samson as, if I had a hero, it would be him. Now that I've learned more about Samson, I am not holding him up as a hero for my boys. I promise you. What we see in the life of Samson, though, and in this part of our Old Testament, is what does life look like when you live it without any barriers? What do un uncontrolled, with no self-control and no temperance, believers look like? Well, if you want to go to Judges, you can get some good, violent snapshots. It's not the kind of book I would encourage you to do much reading in, but it is the Word of God. It is a very violent book. The book of Judges is at a time period where there was no king in Israel. That's why it's called Judges. This was based on their, their leaders. Now, we should not think in terms of Judges, Amy Coney Barrett, or something with black robes on. They were regional, political, military leaders, something like a tribal chief. And God used these particular leaders to rescue his people. And the book of Judges follows Joshua, of course. And at the beginning, Joshua has died. They have come into the promised land, but they're not obeying God. They're not taking over the territories as God commanded them to do. What they're rather doing is living alongside the Canaanites and all the otherites and refusing to obey God. And they began to be idolaters just like the people they were neighboring with. 
And there's cycles that go on in the book of Judges. I mean, you keep seeing them. They would sin against God. Then they would go into bondage. They would cry and ask for forgiveness and rescue. God would hear their cry, rescue them. They would get proud. They'd go right back into sin. You see these cycles over and over again. But the key to the book is actually at the end because after you see these six main judges that are dealt with and these cycles repeating themselves, you get to the end of the book and it says there was no king in Israel and at that time everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's repeated again. There was no king in Israel and at that time everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So if you want a visual for what it looks like in a life when we have no self-control is just do whatever's right in, you with me? Your own eyes, right? Okay, so, so that's the visual. Now, Samson, let's just talk about him for a moment here, and I just want to do some review. Now, Samson, Samson, we know three things about, and I just want to get those out here real quickly by way of example, but so that we can have the confidence about how we're studying scripture. I've mentioned this to you before, but I want to mention it to you again. When we're studying our Old Testament particularly, we want to look at it from the, the big 30,000-foot view as well as the close-up view. The 30,000-foot view is this. All these Old Testament narratives are pointing to who? Jesus, okay? So we're always looking for who? Jesus. When we read our Old Testament, we're always looking for who? Jesus. Because he said it was all about who? Me. That's what he says in Luke 24. But when we talk about it in micro... What we find is these narratives are given to us for examples that we should not follow their lustful desires like they followed. 1 Corinthians 10 puts it that exact way. That these stories, these narratives that we have in these history books, this is the second Old Testament history book, are given to us as examples. Little snapshots. So here are the three things. First of all, Samson, believe it or not, was a Christian. He was a believer. Now, that surprises perhaps you, but we're told in Hebrews 11 that he was a man of faith. There are other people in Scripture that I scratch my head and say, were they really Christians? Like Lot, we find out in 2 Peter that he was a Christian. And you're like, really? But Samson was a believer. We also know that Samson was very gifted. He had the, what we would call in the New Testament the charisma. He had spectacular gifts, mainly strength that God used in supernatural ways to deliver his people. So he was a very spiritually gifted person. And throughout chapters 13 to 16, you're going to see this sprinkled throughout the text, the Spirit of God, the ESV says, rushed on him. And when the Spirit of God rushed on him, he was able to do these amazing things. He was very gifted. But similar to New Testament believers, he was spiritually gifted, but he lacked the spiritual graces. I don't think anybody that has read chapters 13 to 16 would argue with that final point. <laughs> he, he had the gifts, but he lacked the spiritual graces of self-control. And that is very possible with New Testament believers, isn't it? Do you remember when we studied 1 Corinthians 12 to 14? Make me feel good. Shake your head. Yeah, 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 that was so good. <laughs> well, when we were studying the spiritual gifts, chapters 12 to 14, chapter 13 is square in the middle. Because it's making the point that you can have all these gifts that the Corinthians were really excited about. All the charisma, but they could lack the graces. They lacked love. And he said, you can have all the gifts without the graces, and what are you? Nothing. That's 1 Corinthians 13. Well, here again we see that. And the biggest lack of grace that we see in the life of Samson is 
this lack of self-control. And I want you to see it in chapter 14, verse 3. The end of verse 3. A miraculous birth to Manoah and his wife. They were told, the angel of the Lord, come to Manoah and his wife. First his wife, then to Manoah. And said, he is, he's going to be born and he's going to have the Nazarite vow from his birth. Which meant that he could not cut his hair. He could not touch anything unclean or eat anything unclean. It was a vow of dedication to God. Nazarite vows were generally short-term, but his was going to be for life. Then he was born, and we're told in chapter 14, he's an older teenager, a young adult, and he goes to a town called Timnah, and he says, I found a woman, and I want her. That's what he said. And then if you'll notice at the end of verse 3, he's talking to his parents, and he says, get her for me, for she is what? You see it in your text? She's right in my what? in my eyes. Remember the theme of Judges? There was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was what? So if you want to know the opposite of self-control, it's not just spontaneity, it's not just being impulsive, it's doing what's right in what? Your eyes, in my eyes. That's lack of self-control. And here we see it in the life of Samson. Now just to go for the story, just real quickly, fly over with me again. I want you to see this in the life of Samson. Samson, one of the last judges of the book of Judges, but one of the ones that had the most flaws, if you're reading it from the text of his character, you notice that the book of Judges is going to give for us this story of Samson and give us three chapters. He tells his parents he wants this woman. They try to talk him out of it. And you'll notice in the parenthetical, they don't know that the Lord is actually at work here. Now, we shouldn't take from that that it was okay for Samson to marry this Philistine woman because God had, con had, had commanded his people not to do such. But what they didn't know is that God was actually going to use Samson's lack of self-control and his wrong choices to bring about his own glory and the good of his people. He says, get her for me. So he goes to visit her prior to his parents getting her for him. And on his way is the first moment where the Spirit of God rushes him. He comes to a lion, my earlier illustration, and he decides he'll rip the lion from shivers to shiver, or pieces to pieces. He, he, he rips the lion apart. He goes and visits his bride-to-be, considers her to be worthy of him marrying her, comes back home, and on his way back home, he sees the carcass. Remember, he has a Nazarite vow. He's not supposed to touch the carcass, but now bees have made honey inside the carcass, so he, he, he scrapes it out. Decides this will be a nice snack for mom and dad, kind of a little favor for my trip. Brings it home, doesn't tell mom and dad where he got it. And then it's time for him to have the wedding feast. The wedding feast will last a while. We're told in the text that they go to the wedding feast and Samson's surprised. He's surprised because he thought that everybody had been invited, but his bride-to-be says, by the way, we have 30 more people coming. It appears that Samson wasn't happy with this. I don't know if it had the same thing to do with the way things are today. And he started seeing dollar signs and how much it was going to cost to have 30 additional guests. I mean, we're always trying to shrink that guest list, right? Um, but nevertheless, he was upset about it. So he decided, I've got to figure out a way to deal with these 30 additional guests. So his plan was, I'll have a riddle. Here's the riddle. And the riddle was found from this... this um, taking of the um, honey from the lion and the little riddle was this you'll see it in chapter 14 out of the eater came something to eat 
out of the strong came something sweet. And here was his, his little deal. He made a bribe. He said, if you can figure that out, I'll pay for your tuxedo. I guess, tuxedo, something like that. So I'll pay for your clothes if you can figure out the riddle. But if you don't, you have to pay for my clothes. Well, they became upset with this because they couldn't figure it out. So they go to his wife-to-be and they say, tell us what the, the riddle is. And if you don't tell us what the riddle is, we're going to burn you and your father. I mean, this is the kind of guest you invite to a wedding. I mean, this is kind of ridiculous. Nevertheless, she begins to press Samson. What's the riddle? He gives in, tells her the riddle. And to make a long story short, they then were able to receive their tuxedos for free. Samson gets angry, and he goes out and kills 30 people in a nearby town, nearby town, takes their garments, brings them back as the payment for the bribe. Now, the reaction was fierce, and we're told in the text that as a result, he got mad, he left, and he went back home. He was angry. While he was away, his father-in-law-to-be decides that he'll give the bride-to-be to his best man. When Samson cools down, he comes back. As he returns back, he is wanting to love his wife. His father-in-law stops him and says, No, I gave her to your best man. Would you like my younger daughter? You might expect Samson got mad. He got angry, and this time he does something incredible. He goes out and gets 300 foxes, and he ties their tails together. He lights them on fire and sends them into the harvest fields of the Philistines. Recently, I've noticed on my runs that I've had foxes run in front of me. I don't know if you've seen this. And I've been studying this passage, so I've thought recently, how difficult would it be to just catch one of them, let alone 300? And and then once you catch 300, you're tying their tails together, lighting them on fire, and he sends them through these harvest fields. Now, the Philistines obviously were not happy with this after their fields were destroyed. So they find out what happened. They discover that it was because he was angry at his father-in-law-to-be and his wife-to-be because he had given his wife-to-be to his best man. So they went and killed the father to, father-in-law-to-be and the wife-to-be. And then Judah surrounds Samson and says, we're going to give you to the Philistines. And he says, go ahead, tie my hands up and give me to them. And he does. And then as we get into the later chapters, he breaks those ropes that they put on his hands and he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Now, if you're not interested yet, this is an amazing moment. He keeps having the Spirit of God come upon him and he keeps killing many Philistines, but he continues to do whatever's right in his own eyes. So he's got this parallel. There are moments where you're like, should I cheer for him or should I cry over him? That's how you feel when you're reading this narrative. And I think intentionally so. Come to chapter 16, and again, his lack of self-control, he goes into a prostitute, and then the Philistines surround him, and he gets angry, gets up in the middle of the night, takes the gate and the post, and carries it up on the top of a mountain. And then he meets Delilah. And you remember Delilah? She was bribed to tell them what the secret of his strength was, and she began to try to ask him and press him, and he played around with her. And first of all, he said, well, if you get these dry vines, then I can't have my strength. And he, she said, the Philistines are here. He broke, and, he, and it was obvious he lied to her. He kept doing that. He did that with new ropes. Then he said, if you put dreadlocks in my hair, then that will do it. Finally, she cried and cried and cried, and he shared his heart. And he said, I've never had a razor on my head. And so she shaved his head, cut his hair, 
And we're told this is the saddest verse, actually, in all of this, because if you look at chapter 16, verse 20, she says, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are here. And it says in verse 20, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. You talk about sad moments in the scriptures. He, he had been so privileged to have these spiritual gifts, but had no self-control and no graces, no walking in the Spirit, and he didn't even know when the Spirit's power had departed from him. So the Philistines, they seize him, they gouge his eyes out, and his hair is all cut. And the text tells us that he was taken to deal with the servants and he would help grind the grain as a blind man with his head shaven and that's kind of where the story ends or at least where I want it to end now and I just want to take that snapshot from Samson a believer who was gifted spiritually but did not have the graces to ask us the question are we similar have we embraced the understanding of the scriptures that spiritual giftedness does not equal spiritual maturity. That sometimes we can look at our spiritual endowments or our abilities that God has given us to minister to the people of God in the context of the local church, may even become a little bit proud about those gifts, but lack the spiritual graces that are the true testament of spiritual growth and spiritual empowerment. Just three things here as we make some application. Here's the good news. God will keep you. We're going to see at the conclusion here that, that God doesn't give up on his servant because he has no self-control. Philippians 1.6 says, what he started in you, he's going to complete. Amen? So, so here's the good news. Some of you are saying, wow, I lack self-control. Maybe you're feeling good because you don't lack it like Samson lacked it. But either way, the beauty of this benediction that I often give to you is now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Here's the good news. Our God will keep us from falling ultimately. Unless you think because Samson is now under the guardianship of the Philistines and he is their slave and he is their prisoner that that's how the story ends. Well, it's not how the story ends. God will keep you. But I also want you to see that grace will teach you. How do we develop self-control? How do we see this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit grow in our lives? Well, a few things I want to mention to you. I want to ask you to turn over to another passage. Turn over real quickly, please, with me to Titus chapter 2. Can you turn over there real fast? Titus chapter 2, that's a pastoral epistle. And this word self-control is going to be used. The same aspect of the fruit of the Spirit we're considering. But I want you to see where we start. Don't go toward the counterfeit of just trying to do better. But look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. How do we keep ourselves, guard ourselves from the counterfeit? 
how do we keep ourselves from just impulsively going to more willpower, more self-discipline? Folks, the place we start always in the Christian life is the cross. And I want you to see here, he's saying that the grace of God has appeared and it has become our mentor, our teacher. It has tutored us to say no to worldly passions, to say no to ungodliness, and to live self-controlled lives. In other words, the Christian life never starts with guilt. It always starts with grace. You see, we're never to look at the scriptures or the commands from scriptures outside of the context of God's big story of redemption. You see, he's saying here that it's actually the grace of God that came into our lives that teaches us to have the kind of self-control that's being described in Galatians 5. So let it never be from this pulpit or from your own heart that your motivation is, I feel guilty and I'm going to try to do better. That's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac in the Christian life. The place to start is always the same. This amazing grace that we did not deserve that's been shown to us in Christ, this free grace, that's the fuel for motivating a holy life. And it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It's like, just try a little harder. Be a little more disciplined. Make your bed. But what we see here is not, that's not the start. The start is the wonderful free grace of God in Christ. So how do we develop it? We start with rehearsing the gospel. Preach the gospel to your own heart. Secondly, though, there is some denial here. Do you see what happens next? He, he says this grace of God is going to teach us something. It's going to teach us to renounce ungodliness. It's going to teach us to renounce worldliness and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. That means that there is a place in the Christian life motivated by God's grace where we take practical steps to protect ourselves from impulsiveness and giving in to our passions. That means that there's nothing legalistic about guarding your life. Putting up fences that will, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, that you can abstain, abstain from fornication and worldly lust, according to 1 Peter chapter 2 that war against your soul. But he's saying grace would motivate you to actually do something publicly or at least practically that would guard you. Maybe I could illustrate it like this. What we're trying to do in practical Christian growth to avoid giving in to our passions is we're trying to separate two things. Hear this. We're trying to separate temptation and opportunity. When temptation and opportunity come together, it's like nitro and glycerin. You understand me? So if, if I'm tempted and I have no opportunity, I'm probably not going to give in to my passions. Because I'm tempted, I'm magnetized to something, but I have no opportunity to fulfill that sin. Same thing's true when I have opportunity but no temptation. So what that means is we need to know our flesh and we learn our sin nature, we learn our proclivities, and we start saying there needs to be some blocks set up so that temptation and opportunity don't keep meeting together. For some of us in this room, we really do feel guilty that we keep giving in to that passion. 
Perhaps it is internet pornography. And you need to have some safeguards. You need to put up some blocks. You need to put up some filters. Or you need to have some accountability. So that you can keep temptation and opportunity for combining. Because you know how powerful your desires are. And you say, well, you didn't list my proclivity. I don't have time. But we as believers, we are taught by grace. And by that grace, we are mentored to block and try to keep temptation and opportunity from meeting together. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10, in that whole area of doubtful issues, Paul says this, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Lest he fall. Your, your flesh, your sin nature, my sin nature is crafty. Some of you know exactly what you're up against. Your flesh, you can be living for God, not involved in sin, and there's something in your mind that kind of says, hey, maybe you could do this later. You're like, where did that come from? Well, you have a sin nature, and it's strategic, and it has its own mind and its own will and its own desires. And grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, but here's the good news. He then looks forward. All God's people should have a hallelujah here. He says, we're looking forward to the blessed hope, the appearing of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, this time of temptation, this time of being tempted to give in to your passions, it's not going to be forever. Amen? I love that line in the hymn, when the church is saved to sin no more. It's coming, folks. So th there's encouragement here. We're waiting for the king to come back. And while the king is not here, we as his bride are going to let grace teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live in self-control. I want to finish with the good news, though. You may know how the story ended, but act like you don't. Here's Samson. His eyes aren't coming back. But the text tells us his hair starts growing back. And they're having a big party, a big banquet. The booze, everybody's enjoying themselves. And now they need some entertainment. Go get Samson. And so they're at the temple of the god Dagon. All the brass is there. All of the big wigs of the Philistine government are there. They're having a grand party. We're told that over 3,000 people are there. They bring out Samson to make fun and sport with him. And then there's a servant. I've always imagined it to be a young boy, who, a servant, who Samson says, can you take me over to the pillars? The two pillars that hold up the balcony where there were many partiers and revelers. And so he does. And we're told that Samson in that very moment said, God, would you please give me one more opportunity? Help me avenge those who plucked out my eyes. And we're told in the story that he pushed the columns and all the Philistines died, as well as Samson. And the text says that he killed more in his death than he did in his life. Now the amazing thing is, remember the big picture, God's rescuing his people, and he's using Samson, and he's restoring Samson, and he's allowing Samson to once again be used of God to rescue his people, even after all of these uncontrolled, passionate, sinful outbreaks. That's comforting. But remember, all of these characters look forward to a greater hero. And there was another greater judge, 
a perfect judge, who also had a miraculous birth, and who also at his death took care of all of our enemies. He made an open shame of them, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he didn't stay dead, he rose from the dead, and he's coming back to take his people home to be with him forever. So as we look at Samson, we look to the greater one, the one who's going to be the perfect judge, who has destroyed our enemy, given him a death blow, and now we can have victory in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd clothe us with Jesus, that you'd clothe us in humility, self-control, and love, and patience, and peace. Lord, my real concern is for perhaps hearts that aren't tender to the needs that we have in our own lives that have become callous to any self-reflection and certainly any repentance. Lord, we pray that we'd be a repenting people, not be able to attend gathered worship week after week after week without ever being pierced by your Spirit, broken. Lord, we confess to you that we have become professional church members at times where we know what's expected and we've learned how to attend worship gatherings without opening up our hearts in humility to your word. We pray for forgiveness. We pray that we would die daily and that we would take up our cross and live for you. Spirit of God, please shape us. We ask that these wonderful aspects of the fruit of the Spirit would be more evident in this church and in this church family, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.